you're listening to the Canadian Streetlight Podcast with Aaron Hale and Mike Ferrier as your hosts. Subscribe to the podcast at CanadianStreetlight.ca. Soli Deo Gloria. team for leading us in song this morning. And just some great truths that we're able to remind ourselves of through song. And I, I pray that even as you go throughout the week, you find those songs on your lips and in your heart and um, just constantly worshiping God. Let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, realizing it's as John Newton wrote, Lord, we are left to ourselves nothing but a wretch, God, and, and a sinful and selfish God, and yet you have cut us off of what is a, what was a wild, unkept olive tree, and you have grafted us in to your cultivated tree, God, and you have nourished us and pruned us, Lord, that we might be called your children no longer your enemies, but children that get to sit around your table and, and uh, talk with you and, and have the, the blessing of, of your watch care over us and the promises of your faithfulness and, and covenants to us, Lord. We thank you for that this morning. And I ask as we look at the remaining section, Romans 11, if you give us understanding, Father, as I speak, may you help my words be clear and, and accurate according to how you have written these things, Lord, and uh, we just ask that your Spirit would help us keep our minds focused uh, on you for, for this time, Lord, that we could uh, hear and, and understand what your Word is saying. And even throughout this day, Father, help us to have this day, the day set aside to rest, to set off the cares of the world, the struggles at work, the... the uh, political stress, Lord, that we can just set those things aside, give them to you, and, and rest in your presence and in your word, and in the day to rejoice in what you've done. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. John Piper rightly said that redemptive history exists to keep the Jews from boasting in their Jewishness, and the Gentiles from boasting over Jews. And it's an amazing thing to see here why God has set up his salvation as he has. And at the heart of it is to keep men from boasting in their salvation. No Jew will on the last day stand before God and say, it's because I'm a Jew that you have blessed me and have saved me. It's because of my physical connection to Abraham that, that I received the promises and the blessing. No, no Jew will be able to say that. And at the same time, no non-Jew, no Gentile, will be able to say, I'm better than the Jews because obviously we've been chosen and they've been cut off. And, and I must be better, I must be more attractive, or maybe I'm more fruitful. Uh, no, no Gentile will be able to say that either, but we will have to say only by your grace, O oh God, your amazing grace. That is why I can stand only by the blood of Christ in your own way. And so, if you were not able to make it last week, uh, I'm not going to take as much time to, to kind of give you some of the context around this chapter, um, other than just to, to say that Romans is very much a letter about salvation. And Paul, from the beginning, builds from, from sin and its effects, and he goes into salvation, has to be by faith, where we cannot fulfill the righteousness of God. Uh, Jew and Gentile alike are under sin, and uh, he continues to teach what it means to be born again, what it means to be created new. And, and then we find in Romans 8, the glorious benefits of being in Christ, the glorious promises and assurance that we have, that we are more than conquerors, we are no longer under condemnation, that nothing can separate us from His love, not angels or principalities, 
nothing will be able to sever what Christ has done. And then we come to Romans 9, and Paul begins to deal with the question, what about Israel? And, and, we, and just to remind you of something very important to keep in mind, not just throughout Romans, but throughout the New Testament, is Paul is always dealing with two Israels in his mind. There is the ethnic people of Israel who are the physical descendants of Abraham, who we most often would think of when we think of Israel. We think of Israel in the Middle East, and Palestine, that's who we tend to think of in regards to Israel. But Paul pointed out in Romans 9 that there is a spiritual Israel. Not all Israel is Israel, he said in Romans 9. And so that was one of the ways in which he, he dealt with the problem as God forsaken his promises to Israel in Romans 9 7. Paul said, um, not all the children, not, um, but it's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So there is a sense in which we are Israelites, we are Jewish people. Because the way Paul defines a Jew spiritually in Romans 2.28 is it one who is a Jew inwardly, who's had a circumcision of the heart, who has been born of the Spirit. That is a true Jew in its pure sense. But there is still the issue that Paul deals with of what about ethnic Israel? Those who are physical descendants of Abraham. And last week we looked at three questions Paul raised regarding ethnic Israel um, in, in chapter 11 was where we focused our time and the first question was has God rejected his people in 11 verse 1 and his answer was simply no he is not Paul said I'm an Israelite and therefore I'm living proof that God has not totally cast off all Jewish people because I am a Jew and he said just as God told Elijah there is a remnant in each generation. There will be Jewish people who will be saved and who will profess Christ as Lord, and God will see to it that there is a remnant. The second question he asked was, has Israel failed? You know, that they, they had a chance to try, but they failed, and, and now it's over for Israel. And he said, well, the elect obtained it, the remnant did obtain and will obtain what they were seeking. But there is also a season of hardening upon Israel right now that they cannot see and they cannot hear because of their unbelief and their disobedience. God has given them over to a season of blindness. And the third question we saw last week was, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Verse 11. Did, did, is God just setting Israel up for one big final fall and then that's the end of God's purpose for Israel. And again, Paul answered, no, by no means. No, no, no. Rather, God has used their trespass, used their unbelief. As he closes the door on Israel, he opens the door of salvation to the Gentiles, that he may pour his riches upon all the world. And this obviously isn't talking about material riches. It's, it's the riches that he's been describing for 11 chapters. The riches in Christ, the riches of an inheritance, the riches of being created again um, by the Spirit of God. And so God isn't done with Israel. And then Paul, and we're going to look at this morning, he turns to the Gentiles. And he's writing to the church in Rome, and as many of the New Testament churches, there's a mixture. There's, a, there's often a group of Gentiles who have no Jewish history, no connection physically to Abraham, but they are saved by the Spirit of God. And then there is also Jewish people there in those churches that are also coming out of Judaism, seeing Christ as their Savior, embracing Him as Lord, and they're being saved. And it creates sometimes conflict in which Paul is going to deal specifically with the Gentiles. Because apparently they were becoming quite proud that they are now the people of God and that Israel by and large has been cut off. And so uh, the title of this morning is A Word to the Wild Olive, which is us, anyone who is not of Jewish descent. Paul is going to give us some very strong and firm warnings 
Um, and he starts this section in verse 16 with two pictures. First one's very short. He doesn't develop it really at all. And it's the picture of dough. And he says, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. Now, probably many of you don't make bread, you know, often you just go down to the grocery store and you buy a pre-made, pre-cut loaf of bread. But, uh, of course, for the Jewish people, they had to make their bread. They had to, to combine the ingredients, and, uh, you know, today if you get homemade bread, it's like, oh, wow, real homemade bread. Uh, for them, it was very much a way of life. And it, early on in, in Israel's um, history, God established this idea of first fruits. And it was to be practiced in, in everything that they did. Um, if they had, he's using the example of a lump of dough. You're making bread, maybe you're going to make a bunch of loaves, and before you put the, that dough into a pan, before you form it into to, um, loaves and bake it, you pull off a lump, and they would take that lump to the temple and give it to the priests as a way of saying, Lord, thank you for this provision. Lord, we realize that everything, the whole lump, everything we have is from you. And this was the way in which the priests were fed and taken care of, was by these offerings. They practiced it with grain, with cattle, with sheep, this, this idea of first fruits. Um, and there was actually a Jewish feast called the Feast of First Fruits, in which would be possibly around this time of year or a little earlier, the harvest has come in, the grain has been cut, and they bring a portion of that to the temple, uh, the first fruits, as a way of saying, thank you, Lord, for the harvest. And I think in many ways it's where we get the idea of a tithe. You know, we don't necessarily get paid with cattle or grain now, it's, it's money. It is the, the primary currency in our day. And so it's the same idea that, you know, when you get a paycheck, uh, we take a portion of that off and we give it to the Lord's work as a way of saying, Lord, we know this is all from you. The whole check is from you, God. And we want to thank you, and we want to just give this as a, a way of saying uh, and reminding ourselves, thank you, Lord, we're dependent on you. And so Paul's argument is, if that first portion is given and becomes holy, as it goes to the temple and given to the priests, then the whole lump is holy. And so it's all been blessed by God in that sense. And he's using it as a picture of Israel, that if the first fruits, if Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the forefathers of the nation of Israel, are holy, set apart by God, so are their descendants. So are the rest of the Israelites who would come from them. Uh, and then the second picture, which he then spends pretty much the rest of the chapter uh, using to teach us Gentiles is the picture of a tree. And he says, if the root is holy, so are the branches. And again, you, you understand the picture that nothing in the tree can grow without being nourished and watered by what the root supplies. And so he's going to use that as a picture to, to teach us and illustrate how God has set up our salvation. Um, so, I think first of all we see there is an occasion for pride here. There's something that Paul sees happening that could give the Gentiles a feeling of an upper hand, or like, oh yeah, you know, this, this is about us. And uh, so we, what is the occasion for pride that he sees? And it is simply, in verse 17, some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in. So there's one occasion for pride. The Jewish uh, people, by and large, there is a remnant, but by and large, they are broken off, Paul says, right now. And, uh, and so were they in the time of Christ. And so that could be a means for a new branch coming into this tree to be like, oh yeah, we must be a better branch. We must be more attractive. We must be more fruitful if God's going to break them off so that he can fit us in. We must be pretty special. Uh, and so there's one occasion for pride. The other occasion for pride would be in the end of the verse there that we also now share in the nourishing roots 
of the olive tree, so that the sap and the nutrients that once gave life to the nation of Israel is now giving life to this Gentile branch, to us, um, the, the church, and uh, that itself, you know, we now experience the blessings of God. We now experience what it means to be covenant people of God. And Paul sees that as an occasion for the Gentiles to be prideful. It isn't that those things aren't true. He says they are true. But in verse 18, he says, Do not be arrogant towards the branches. So don't let pride rise in your heart, specifically against the nation of Israel. And I think this is very timely for us. As you know, uh, as things continue to escalate in the Middle East, and we have this movement like the ISIS group who is setting themselves against anyone who would not come up, align themselves with, with their religion and their agenda, and specifically even the nation of Israel themselves find themselves very much in opposition. And, and the challenge for us is to have a biblical understanding of what is God doing with Israel, and even how are we to pray for Israel and for the church, and, and to do so in a, in a biblical manner. And I think that very much applies to us here. So we're going to see um, a few ways that Paul gives the Gentiles to fight this pride. If you feel that pride rising, Christian, if you feel yourself thinking that, yeah, God really lucky to get me. I, I'm a good branch. You know, I, I don't know how he got along without us, really. I mean, how, what did he do before he had us Gentiles? Um, that's not the case, obviously. And here's a few ways Paul gives to fight that kind of pride rising in our hearts. First of all, he simply says, if you are, so if, if this pride comes, you know, and, and big word would be anti-Semitism, which is there are groups, I don't think it's much a problem here, but there are even churches or, or uh, um, different groups that really would mock Israel or set themselves against Israel and say, yeah, they were so disobedient, they were so foolish, they, they got what they deserved, that kind of mentality. Um, Paul says, if you, if you feel that, then here's what you do. He says, remember, um, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who supports a root, but the root that supports you. And uh, I, I praise God on your heart all the past week as we started this section, but I know for myself it's been like, you know, this, it should, it should strike us that it is not a Gentile root. It is a Jewish root. It is a Jewish tree that we are grafted into. And Paul's using that to remind these Gentiles that, you know what? You are not standing independent in your salvation. In fact, you are standing dependent upon a covenant made with Abraham that God said, I will bless you, I will multiply you, Abraham, and that is what we've been grafted into. And so Paul says, if you feel that pride coming up in your heart, remember that you are attached to a Jewish tree. It is a Jewish root that Christ came from. Um, in Romans 9, he lists some things that, you know, he asks, what's the advantage of being a Jew? And the last thing he says is that from the nation of Israel came the Messiah. He was a Jewish man, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so that is the nature of the root God has purposed to bring salvation to the world. And so we, it needs to humble us and to keep us in our place. And secondly, uh, he says, he says, okay, so the Gentiles are like, okay, we get that, but um, he says in verse 19, then he will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. So he's like, okay, we get it. It's a Jewish root, and, and we're not, most of us probably are not ethnically Jews. We have no physical lineage to Abraham. So we can at least boast in that, that God has, has taken this branch, he's broken off, so that we would have a spot to go in. Surely that's the ground for boasting in our salvation. And, and Paul says, no, that's not going to work either. Um, he said, that's true, you know, the, the branches were broken off and you have been grafted in, but they were broken off because of their unbelief. 
but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but my translation reads, stand in awe or fear. So if you think that the, the you know God broke off the branch so that we as great Gentiles would have a spot to be grafted in, he says, while it's true that the branch was broken off, uh, remember the reason for their being cut off was their unbelief, and you stand through faith. And so I want to just pause for a moment to think about faith. Uh, again, there, there is a, especially among the more charismatic movement, and maybe some of the word of faith, there's this idea that faith is something that we generate, you know, that, that we have to, to muster up faith in our heart, and that's what God sees and blesses and saves us. If that was the case, then Paul's argument wouldn't work because faith would be a ground for boasting if we generate it. If faith is something that we have to produce for God to save us. But that is not how the scriptures teach us about faith. And uh, we'll just stay with Paul's writing because again, he wrote Romans. Turn over in a little farther into the New Testament to Ephesians chapter 2. And I want to just pause for a moment because it's very important that we, we understand what he's saying. Is faith a ground for boasting or not? Is faith something that we generate, or is it too a gift? Ephesians 2, and I'll just uh, start at the first verse, and I know that many of you are very familiar with this passage, and I pray that we can not treat it as a common thing, but every time we read it, just be wowed at what, at what God has done. Verse chapter 2 of Ephesians and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of humanity. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So that's why, why God is working this salvation, he says. He's showing the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us. We are, we are a showcase of God's compassion, a showcase of God's goodness and mercy. And then in verse 8 he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, a lot of people will go back and forth, you know, when He says, this is not yourself. What is the this referring to? Is it referring to the grace or the faith? And I think it's pretty obvious, even the natural reading and interpretation of the text, is he's talking about salvation. He's talking about grace and faith. All that he has just said has happened. This is all of God. This, the grace is of God, and the faith is of God. And it's so important that we understand um, that even our faith, the faith that, yes, we are called when God calls out the gospel, repent and believe, we are responsible, we are accountable for that command to respond to it. However, we are not spiritually able in and of ourselves to produce faith. That too is another gift of God and His mercy and His goodness. And uh, I know that illustrations always break down at some level, but uh, I find it a bit helpful if, if thinking about um, a home, you know, when you drive around Grand Prairie and, and you see these new houses there, and, and they often have a little sign out front, 
Not, not the for sale sign, but it will say home built by, you know, so-and-so. Whoever built the home puts the name of Christ. How strange would it be to, to see on that sign, home built by best wing hammer, you know, um, or whatever kind of hammer you like to use. Um, that nice hammer, you know. Uh, you don't see that. Why? Because that's simply the tool that was used to build the house. Somebody had to wield that tool. Somebody had to swing that hammer. And so they say the home builder's name. In the same way, our salvation, and if you think of it as like a house, what built the house? Well, it was the grace of God. It is only the grace of God that has built the house of our salvation. And the way that he has done it is through faith, which is what Paul said in Ephesians. By the grace of God, through faith, working through faith. So faith is, is the thing that God uses to work His grace, to work His sanctification. It's not just something that happens at salvation. The grace of God and, and the faith that He gives us to trust in Him, to love Him, to cherish Him, are also the way in which He sanctifies us um, by His grace. And so Paul isn't giving them reason to boast in the faith that they somehow generated. No, he's reminding them that all that they experience as branches grafted in are from God and should strip us of any grounds of boasting or thinking ourselves um, better than our neighbor and especially better than the Jewish people. And so those two things, to, to kill pride, the, the root that we are grafted into is a Jewish root and we stand only by faith and the reason they were broken off was not because they were Jewish, it was not because of, uh, you know, of, of some cultural difference that God was discriminating towards, it was because of their unbelief. And we find throughout this book and, and the New Testament that God is not a respecter of persons. He doesn't care what your background is or, or you know, who your dad was and he is interested in those who will trust him by faith. And, and he's showing us that in a way that he has purpose to save both Jew and Gentile alike. And then we go on and it, it gets heavier and Paul gets sterner. And you can just sense in, in, his, in the way that he's talking to these Gentiles that that he is so passionately defensive about his people in Israel. And he, his heart, even though, you know, this is a man who has been beaten by the Jewish people. He, they, have, they have tried to kill him numerous times. He's been stoned until they thought he was dead. They drag him out of town and they leave him there to die. He gets up and walks back into town to tell them about Christ. And, and yet we still see in his heart this love and this desire for his Jewish brothers and sisters to, to know Christ as he knows Jesus. And just such a picture of his own uh, relentless heart for the lost, especially Israel. And so he goes on in, in talking to the Gentiles, don't be proudful, but, but be fearful, for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Now, I remember you know, trying to read through Romans and you get to a section like that and you just kind of want to skip over it because it's so unsettling, right? I mean, how can Paul, he just finished saying in Romans 8, nothing can separate you from the love of God, and now he's saying, you Gentiles better not be arrogant but fear unless you too be cut off from this tree of blessing of God. And it's like, what is he talking about? How? So are we secure in our salvation or are we not? Can we lose our salvation or can we not, Paul? Uh, which is it? And um, obviously we don't have time to, to unpack that a lot, um, but I do want to say a few words about it. 
Uh, first of all, fear. You know, we just sang Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. It um, was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace that fears my fears relieved. And so there is a sense in which we stand before an infinitely holy God, a God who is perfect in all of His ways, a God who there is no equal. And I've heard the illustration used, which I, I think I found helpful um, in thinking about you know, what kind of fear is this, and it's kind of like the fear that you experience standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon, uh, or maybe the Niagara Falls. That there's this sense in you that you know you want to stand as close as you can to that edge because the beauty and the grandeur of this is so overwhelming and so just it's drawing you in to, to soak up all of it you can to take in its its just majestic nature. But at the same time, you know that you must tread carefully because one wrong step on the edge of the Grand Canyon will let you fall to your death. And same with the, the Niagara Falls, the power of that much water going over, you know, one wrong step, one slip, and you're done. You don't stand a chance if you go off that edge. That's kind of what it's like to stand before an infinitely holy God. There, his beauty and His majesty draw us in, and we just say, God, I, I, I want to see more. I want to I experience more of you. And uh, even in, in John 16, Jesus defined eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God. And so the, the knowledge of God should be our great pursuit and to know Him. And yet there is also this sense of fear and reverence in which we are dealing with an infinitely holy God. A God who is powerful and, and cannot even look upon sin, who dwells in unapproachable light. And Paul says that, that needs to be utmost um, in your heart as you think about this salvation. And, and he says, just as he did not spare the natural branches, he did not let Israel go on and on and on and on in her unbelief, but there came a point when God said, enough, this branch is going to be cut off. And he cut it off, he severed it from the tree. And Paul says, you Gentiles, don't think because you're Gentiles or you know, because you, you might be more uh, fruitful or something that, that God is not also going to deal with you in the same way if you continue in unbelief and rebellion. Now traditionally Baptists have loved the doctrine of eternal security. And, and, and I think rightly so. Praise God that we have a salvation that we can have an assurance in. We can know that I am the Lord's, that I don't have to wonder, am I going to wake up tomorrow believing in Jesus? There's a sense in which, yes, God has saved me. I'm His, I'm His child. Just as, as no matter what my boys might do, you know, they, they terrorize the neighbors or they might destroy our electronics whatever little boys find themselves to get into. Um, no matter what they do, there's always a sense in which, they're mine, those are my boys. No matter what, what they find themselves in the future, you know, by God's grace, He saves them. But regardless, they'll always be my children. And so in the same sense, I believe God wants us to have this sense of, oh, He's my daddy. You know, I, I mess up. And, and I know that I have this battle inside of sin, but I am God's child, and He does not forsake His children. And yet, at the same time, I think we've done ourselves a disservice in maybe even the phrase eternal security. It's not a phrase we find in the Bible. Um, it's a bit misleading in that it can lead you to think that if you go through steps one, two, and three, then you're in. You know, you're done. No matter what you do, no matter how you live, if you've prayed this prayer or if you've been baptized, then you're saved. And you can just go on your merry way and live how you want. And yet, that's not how the Bible speaks of assurance. It uses words like perseverance, of enduring. That's how the Bible speaks of it. And so, well, let's just go to a couple passages quick, because again, I just feel like this is 
so important for us to understand. And, and I would say if it's something that you wrestle with, struggle with, Ben, um, not too long ago, preached through the, the, the letters of 1 John, 2 John, and in, especially in 1 John, that is why John wrote the letter, was to give believers assurance. And the way in which he does that, and we'll look at one verse in a moment, is by asking the question, what does your life look like now? Do you look like a child of God or not? And uh, Colossians 2, again, this is Paul writing, actually I'm back up a little bit, Colossians 1.23. Again, we see Paul describing our salvation in 21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And then this disturbing little word, if, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So Paul's saying, you who were once dead in sin, you've been brought into the family of God, you've been made holy and blameless, and, and the desire of Christ is to one day present you before his Father as his Father's bride. And then Paul says, if indeed you continue. So it's not as though you go through this one-time thing, you get a pass, and all you have to do when you stand before God is just show up, okay, look, I got the stamp right here, uh, I get to go in now, right? Uh, no, it is those who persevere in believing and in uh, faith. And so, uh, one more passage. Go over to First John, chapter three, and look at how John talks about it. Chapter 3, verse 4, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or knows him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, and he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So the, the issue isn't coming in and out of salvation. It isn't as though today I'm saved, and I'm trusting in Jesus, and tomorrow, I don't know, I, I think I might be unsaved today. That's not, not possible. It's not spiritually possible. And uh, I think it was uh, John MacArthur said, if you could lose your salvation, you would. Okay, so if we could possibly lose the salvation, we would lose it like that, because we are so fickle. The issue is, have you actually encountered the living Christ? Have you actually undergone a change of heart? Because if you have, John just said, you cannot keep on sinning. It goes against your very nature. Um, the problem isn't that we have to keep fighting what we want to do as Christians, the, the problem is that we need a new want to. We need a new heart. We need a new set of desires. And that's exactly what happens when, when the Spirit of God comes and takes out that heart of stone and puts in the heart of flesh. You begin to have a new nature. You begin to act according to that new nature. And if you are not... If you, with your mouth, profess Jesus as Lord, but with your life, show that He has no more changed you than, than we see you know, a dead branch um, lying on the ground, thinking it to be a tree. It, it, it cannot be. Um, those who have encountered Christ are changed by Him and are given a new nature. 
And so in that way, I think we need to understand what Paul is saying. It's again this idea of perseverance, of, of continuing in what Christ has done. And just one little illustration, I know it's a bit cliche, but it, it seems to help, is the idea of a caterpillar, right? And, and we know that the caterpillar acts like a caterpillar, eats like a caterpillar, hangs out with other caterpillars. However, once that insect undergoes a change into a butterfly, it can never go back to acting like a caterpillar. You don't see butterflies hanging out with caterpillars, right? They have a new nature, they have an entire new um, desire, if you will, in the way that they live, and so it is with the Christian. And so Paul says, be careful, because if you find your inner self arrogance and pride reigning, then, then not only are you displaying yourself as, as not really understanding the salvation, or even experiencing the life of the tree, but you are in danger of also being cast aside. And so, sometimes you look around and it's like the, the, what you hear coming out of sometimes the church in North America should just cause us to, to weep before God and to pray, Lord, please bring life, please restore us, lest we experience what it is to be cut off by God. And yet, we don't need to fear losing our salvation because He is faithful. If we will continue calling upon Him, continue abiding in Him, then we can trust that He is faithful to keep us. We sing a little song uh, from the book of Jude in our home, and uh, I guess it's kind of just become habit uh, from the doxology, and it goes, uh, I'll try to sing it again. So, now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, faultless with great joy, to the only God and Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all ages. Now and forevermore. And and when you when you feel that in your heart, um, Lord, I don't know. I, I feel so fickle. I feel so weak. You need something like that to sin. You need something like that. So as Ben, when he was last week, preached, talked about preaching to our souls, and that's how we be good branches. That's how we abide. We need those things, Lord. Now to Him who is able. To keep me from falling. Jesus, keep me. Jesus, hold me because it's only by your grace. And then, as Paul uh, finishes his word, his very strong word to these wild olive trees, we see him turn once again and he speaks of Israel's hope. And then we'll close with this. Lest you be, well, he just finished. Sorry, the, the rebuke to us wild branches who've been grafted into the tree. And then he says, um, if you were grafted in, which is, is a wild tree, so it would be difficult to take a wild tree, cut off a branch, and graft it into a cultivated tree. It's almost against the nature of the tree. And if God can do that, if God has the power to do that, how much more do you think he will be willing to pick up that branch that was once part of the tree, that, that was from a small, little, tiny sapling, cultivated and pruned and nurtured by God, how much more do you think he's going to want to be willing to graft that branch back into the tree, speaking of Israel? And then 25, one of the most profound uh, statements, uh, and you know, this messed me up for a long time, and I think I still just reading it's like, wow, that's amazing. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight. So, you know, if you think, if you think that you're pretty smart, let me tell you something, Gentiles, uh, Paul says, he says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. And he quotes Isaiah, the deliverer will come from Zion, who will banish ungodliness from Jacob, 
and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So, a mystery in the Bible is always something that was hidden and yet now has been revealed. And so Paul's about to reveal something that up until this point was hidden to the people of God. And the mystery is, yes, right now there is a hardening upon Israel. They are experiencing the chastisement of God. They are experiencing what it is to be separated from the blessing of God, from the protection of God. But it's only temporary. It's not a, a permanent hardening. What is it that God's waiting for? He says, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so, God has a people among the Gentiles, among those who are not Jewish. And He has, there is a number of people. And when that last Gentile looks up to God and, and looks upon Christ who was crucified and says, Lord, save me, Lord, forgive me of my sin, cleanse me by your blood, then God will turn His attention back to Israel. And what Paul is saying is, they will then experience what it is to be grafted back into this tree, is how I understand it. And there's a lot of controversy, especially if you, if you read old stuff, you know, like around Luther and, and uh, Wesley or uh, John Calvin, some of those guys, they will just say, well, Israel here means the church, you know, it's the spiritual Israel. Uh, or some would say, well, that's just talking about the remnant. Yes, remember the remnant, there will always be a remnant among the Jews. So it's not as though the vast majority of Israel is saying, you're just talking about the government. But it doesn't fit the text, first of all, to say it's the church, because Paul is contrasting it with the Gentiles. He's contrasting this with non-Jews. So I don't think it works to say that's just the church. And at the same time, why would he make this the climax of this section if he's only speaking of a remnant? and not the vast majority. This doesn't mean every Israelite from all time has been saved. It's not what Paul's saying, but rather, I believe in the last days, as we come to the end of time, to the end of the story of God's salvation, there will be a great revival among the Jewish people, and they will look upon Christ as the Lord and their Savior. And, you know, People get into different views on end times and how it's going to be set up and how it's going to unfold. But that's not what Paul's trying to do here. He's just reminding us of God's faithfulness to Israel, His mercy upon us, and how He's going to use all of these things to, as he says in verse 32, consign all the disobedience that He may have mercy on all. That's what God is doing in the way He has set up this story. Now, when we think about, again, we talked a bit last week about the election of God into salvation, um, which clearly is what he's talking about. If God has a number of Gentiles, that when they come in, when they are grafted into this tree, he then turns to the Jews, he must have elected them before they came. And that's a difficult doctrine, because it goes against our desire to be uh, independent and free, and we wonder how can that fit with human responsibility, human accountability, and, and yet you're saying God is sovereign and He's elect a people for His own. And, uh, and I tried to encourage you last week, um, the Bible doesn't reconcile the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God in salvation. It doesn't explain that for us in the Bible, but just tells us that both are true. And therefore, we need to remind ourselves, as he says in Romans 9, we are clay, he is the potter, this is what he has said, this is what he has revealed, and we will worship him and trust that he is good. And there's two things you can respond to. You, know, you can say, okay, he's got, he's got a, a, a set group here of Gentiles that's going to come in. They're going to come in. It's going to happen. So, one response might be, well, what's the purpose of evangelism? Why would I bother talking to my neighbor? Because God's going to do it, right? And it can create this kind of passive heart, um, what is sometimes referred to as hyper-Calvinism, if you want a little theological 
word. But that is so against how God has revealed himself. It's so against the gospel. That is not the Christian response. The Spirit of God would not produce that kind of response in his children, but rather it should give us boldness and confidence to go to the Gentiles and know that God has a people. That there will be some from the Philippines. There will be some from Grand Prairie, Alberta. There will be some from China. And there will be some from Africa. And there will be some from Japan who will respond to the gospel because God has purposed it. And therefore we should have a great confidence and eagerness to be part of God's work. And so I pray that is our response as a church not to become pacifist in our evangelism but to be um, strengthened and encouraged and given great boldness to go. Let's see them come in. Let's bring these Gentiles in that we can usher in the last days, the turning of Israel to their Savior, the return of Christ and the glorification of all things. And so um, Paul finishes that and it's like he's like, what else can I say? I can't, I can't from these depths of God's wisdom anymore, I have to stop before my brain just quits. And he, he just basically sings a praise of worship to God in verse 33. And, uh, and we're going to sing that together in a moment. Um, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. And I pray that that is our heart's song this morning. And as we thank him um, for what he has done, us who were set apart, we were little olive trees growing out in the wild, unkept, uncared for, unnurtured, unpruned. And as Israel's unbelief caused them to be severed, God comes out from among the thorns and the briars and he pulls out some people and grafts them into his mercy and his goodness. Thank you for tuning in to the Canadian Streetlight Podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or perhaps a podcast suggestion or topic, visit us online at canadianstreetlight.ca. Soli Deo Gloria.